Hey, thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. Oh, today's one of those tricky shows, what to put on the podcast. Uh, so again, Sirius XM, three hours. I, th- I think the best thing to put here now is the first segment of the second hour. But this is really a continuation of the first hour where we talked a lot about work ethic and raising kids. And we had a caller call in about sports. And I was going to move on to immigration, but we had so many callers. And it's like, uh, let's actually keep going. Let's ride this wave for a little while. And it turned out to be pretty good. So when you listen on SiriusXM Live, of course, we get amazing callers. And we don't usually put the callers in this podcast here. But I just want you to know that, that we do have callers and they're fantastic. Um, so let's, let's put that segment here uh, where we talk about family, work ethic, and sports. There's a, a fun uh, balance on this show of having a plan and uh, following the plan and the agenda. And then also you taking the lead and saying, no, Slater, we want to, uh, <clears throat> let's ride this wave a little longer. So it's like, oh, okay, we'll ride a little longer. The phones are full. So let's, uh, let's do another segment of this, see where it goes. So in the last hour, we were talking about, well, in the last week, in the six o'clock hour, six o'clock hour is a different place. Six o'clock hour is a special place. It's different than the rest of the show in, in many ways. So if you can join us there one of these days, it'd be great. I'd love to have you. So last week at 6 o'clock hour, we talked a lot about education. And then we talked about work ethic. And then today I read some emails on work ethic. Lonnie wrote me an email asking, why, when we, if we had neglectful parents from 1920 to 1960, there were neglectful parents, but there was still a work ethic culture in America. Why is there no work ethic today? This was inspired by a video of a guy at a job site saying, this is my third day at this house. We're building this house, third day here, no one showed up. And everyone's calling in with the lamest excuses. And we, we brought in Hillbilly Elegy, told some stories just about the, the, our culture today that no one, no one wants to work. What is that? What's going on? This is unsustainable. What's happening here? So he says, well, back in the day, why did, why did people still work? I mean, there, were, there, there was poverty. And there was neglectful parents. So what's, what's different today? And he said, well, part of it is lack of hope. That was his answer. And I think that's true. For the first time ever in America, this is amazing. For the first time ever, young people do not think that they can live a more prosperous life than their parents. How about that? And the other way around too. For the first time ever, parents don't think that their kids can live a more prosperous life than them. That is a, that is, uh, like that was one of the great American like, ethos was that you work hard so that your kids can live a better life than you. But we've reached such a, a state of prosperity, I guess, that we're like, oh yeah, I don't think my kids can do better. I think we're pretty much tapped out, tapped out here. Like, ooh, I don't know what that, I don't know what to do with that. And then you also have this new recipe of phones and entertainment and people just being numb. And it's, it's not contentment. It's very different. We need more contentment in our culture. That'd be a good thing. I wish people were more content because contentment leads to peace. This is not contentment. People are numb, but they still have this greed. They still have the greed and envy eating away at them. And that turns into bitterness. Right, that doesn't lead to peace. You with me? Contentment leads to peace. Greed leads to bitterness. And a lot of people numb that by playing video games and doing drugs. 
and all these other self-destructive things. But they're still checked out. They're not, tr- they're not even trying to satiate the greed. They're trying just to numb the greed. That's one of the great things about a free market system is it acknowledges that greed exists and tries to channel it for good. But people don't go down the channel. They just sit in the greed and then numb it. All right, so we talked about that. Then Susan called in and said, oh, Slater, the one reason why kids don't have a strong work ethic is because uh, so many kids are playing sports instead of working part-time jobs. And that's very interesting because, of course, sports teach lessons too. But there's pros and cons to each that I've never really considered. And she said, you know, kids really can't do both, at least not in the same season. How could you do both and school? Like that doesn't, and be with family. Because that's the other thing. Like the home, the home is so important. That's my concern for my family is how do we keep the home a sacred place? How do we keep it a safe place, a peaceful place, and a place that's more than a bus station? I can't have my home be just a drop-off pick-off point, pick-up point. It's got to be more than that. And if you're doing too much outside the home, even for good reasons, there's a huge cost to that. Man, what a what a balance. All right, let's take some calls. So that, that's where we're at. 866-95-PATRIOT. Uh, 866-95-PATRIOT. Go to Seth first, who's in Kentucky. What's going on, Seth? Hey, not a whole lot on my way to work this morning. Um, so I'm 27 years old, so I'm still part of that millennial uh, era. Mm-hmm. But uh, growing up in eastern Kentucky, uh, go uh, coal capital, the way people are raised is just completely different. There's no pride. There's no discipline. Um, as in respect to, to how my father was raised, when he was doing homework, he would have to redo it over and over until his penmanship doesn't matter if the the homework was done correctly, but my grandparents made sure that he had pride in his work. Mm. Uh, I was given a lot of opportunity because my dad was prosperous. I was allowed to play sports, but however, if he was going to do something, he was going to give it everything you had. Um, Still because of the culture, I was still weak. I was Kentucky state trooper for a couple of years and I really give a lot of, testament to the Kentucky State Police and who they made me who I am today and I take a lot of there's a lot of attention to detail in everything that I do now yes uh, so I, I think we're lacking that in this society I think if you tell your kids to clean up your room and they shove it everything in the closet they done their job and let's go home so that's kind of my my two that's it that's it the bare minimum no pride in your work for its own sake would you say your parents did a good job trying to build that in you or do you think it kind of stopped and it was, it was mostly the, the state troopers that built that pride for you? Uh, I, I really give both. I think I was too young to really see what my father was doing. He owned his own business for 38 years. Uh, he left three or four o'clock in the morning, answered phone calls throughout the night. Uh, didn't get home to late. If I need to be disciplined or something like that, he would come home and take care of that, go back <laughs> to work. Um, so I really feel like my parents was always there for me. Um, but the state police kind of made it hit home because in their academy, you don't get to go home. You, you have to be there. Uh, so I really give both. One, just to open the eyes 
Mm, that's Opened right. my eyes to see what my parents was doing. That's right. Laid the foundation. Then that's right. That's good. Seth, I appreciate the call very much. Um, that's actually similar to Trump, actually. So um, we're talking to Bill O'Reilly on Wednesday. He's got a new book coming out. But Bill O'Reilly has a book about Donald Trump. Looking up the title here. Uh, the United States. I got an email the other day. Someone was like, oh, Slater, you should really have the book title in front of you before you talk about it. And because you took too long to look it up. I was like, I mean, what? Like, give me a second. I don't know the title of every book. Of, the United States of Trump, how the president really sees America. And it talks about Trump's uh, upbringing, which no one ever talks about. And Trump oh, never talks about. Uh, and then how his dad and mom laid these foundational principles. But young, young Donald did not follow those all the time, got into some trouble and they sent him off to the New York military Academy. And that's where they, they drilled all that home. Pretty similar story there. No pride in your work. Hmm. Uh, maybe there's a lesson here. If you are a parent and you do good work, how do you make sure your kids can see it? Cause you may go do it way at the factory. You may go do it way at the office. You do it outside of the home. Their kids may not even see it. They just, again, see the lifestyle as Lonnie said earlier. They just see the lifestyle, but not what built the lifestyle. So then they just expect the lifestyle, but they don't see what created it. So how can your kids see not just your work ethic, assuming you have it, but your actual work? Interesting. Dre is in Ohio. Dre, good morning. Good morning. What do you think of this? Uh, I'd just like to say that uh, I believe it's tied into with, like, uh, with hopelessness and, like you had said earlier, and the family structure. Uh, How so the family structure? Well, if you have a family structure, uh, you have family working together, and you have the uh, the children doing chores, uh you know, just helping around the house. Uh, and as far as, you know, helping with the dishes, uh, you know, sweeping the floor, you know, everybody's just helping together and just doing like uh, being a family. Yeah, the home economy. And then, uh, yes. And then it teaches the kids that, you know, also, I think there's also a lack of uh, a purpose in today's, uh, you know, society. And I think that comes from a lack of belief in God and, and a lack of religion. Uh, because you have to have a sense of purpose in order to want to achieve your goals, want to achieve something greater than outside of yourself, mm. and want to uh, be able to provide, you know, for the uh, for society. 100%. No question about that. Dre, I appreciate the call very much. A lot of good stuff here. So the word economics in Greek literally means, like the etymology of the word economics means household management. So it's management of the home. That's what economics means. Isn't that interesting? No economics course in college teaches what the word means. <laughs> it means management of the home. So just think about this. I don't want to romanticize, you know, back in the day, but let's do that for a minute. You had 99% of Americans were farmers. That's what you were. 99% were farmers. 
So what do you got in a farm? Okay, we got your farmhouse. Then you got your farmland. Okay, well, dad and the boys are out working the land. Mom and the girls doing some of the stuff around the land, stuff of the house. But everyone's chipping in. Let's read a little. Let's read some little house on the prairie. Everyone's chipping in. Everyone's doing the thing. So making the candles over there. They're bottling the jarring the fruit over there. Everyone's constantly working the home. All all day, all day, every day, <laughs> we're working the home. Uh, one of the little house books was like there was like a frost coming or, so, or it rained and then it got too cold and like all the crops were gonna die. So the whole family's out shaking off the water off the crops. Like everyone, we're all everyone's fully completely involved in the home. And now, mom and dad go off and work over there. Mom works over there. Dad works way over there. Kid goes off to school. Then kid goes to sports, comes home, eats, sleeps, out, gone. Everything's gone. Everything's out of the home. So back in the day, everything used to be in the home. Economics. And now everything, everything's out of the home. <laughs> You're like, oh, look, that's very different. It's completely different. Those are completely different worlds. So of course, over time, that would create completely different cultures. It would have to, right? 86695Patriot. Uh, let's go to... All right, so a lot of people calling in about... Actually, no, I think Richard from Texas may be on this point. And then I want to get to sports because the Slater family is in the beginning of having to talk about this, so I could really use your advice on that. Richard's in Texas. What's going on, Richard? How are you? This morning. Hey, Richard. Hey. hey no, I, I got you. How are topics. you? Very good, good. Enjoy your topics. Very thought-provoking. Thanks, like Richard. listening to what you guys bring to the table. Uh, you and all your co-patriots on the on the SiriusXM uh, Patriot channel, I really like listening to. Um, Thanks, man. Yeah, the um, um, well, I like. I, I just want to speak for myself. I want to hopefully contribute because you had some great callers come in that actually made really good points. And there's really a lot to it. I think a lot of uh, development to having uh, good work ethic. Um, some of it's modeled, you know, by what you're talking about, the family dynamics. I know my dad was a real hard worker. My mom was too. So, and you just didn't always see, you know, God, they're never home. Yeah, like you're saying, they're never home. Well, they're they're working to contribute to the family to, you know, and, and, and I guess in different eras and different times, uh, there's more of everyone is kind of working on a, you know, like a plantation, if you will, they're farming or whatever. And then as you, as, uh, you know, things develop, then the dynamics of that change. But I remember my dad praying at the table about wanting us to grow up and be productive members of society. And then, amen. And we look at each other like, what was that all about? Like, what, you know, and it's like, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and it, but, it, but, you know, as you, as you you know, you experience your, your own life in retrospect, you're like, you know, all those things that your parents did and the things they said that were, and you know, the discipline that you just didn't quite understand, it comes back to you. So I just think a lot of times it's, it's what's modeled in front of you and it's, yeah, it's your parents, it's, it's your school, it's the church. Uh, what, what's going on in sports, how good of an athlete or not an athlete, or just how you, how you play the game. I mean, all, you know, so, you know, there's so many elements to it 
that uh, I was going to say pride, you know, you can have too much pride, but also in today's society, I'm starting to see people don't have enough. Uh, I just did 20 years as a self-employed personal trainer and people would hire me to come in their homes, you know, their garages, uh, you know, or they'd come to my home. And a lot of what I did was I had to learn more about them. And then I found myself to be a good trainer as I had to model, not just, you know, you show up, you're paying me to, you know, work you out. No, I, I believed in what I was doing and I had to shape a mindset to, you know, get them to, and then after a while it becomes a habit and it becomes routine and everything. But so there's, there's so much, I think, in, in, in development that goes from, I was adopted. So, you know, my, my, the parents I'm speaking about got to me a little late. So I had some bad habits as a very young child, mm-hmm. but I, uh, even at, at age almost 54 now, I still give my parents, uh, constant kudos for the things they emulated and and things they did to try to create um, a good member of society. Uh, you know, I'm still yeah. challenged at times to, you know, uh, be be a better member of society. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it takes uh, there's a lot of internalizing that goes on there with, you know, prayer and yep. and uh, and everything. Else. Now, Rich, I, to your I, show. Rich, I appreciate Yep. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that being a part of it. Rich, I appreciate the call. Thank you. I, I love the, um, thank you for listening. I, I love the image of this is so good. And that's, this will change what we pray for around the table and at night and all the rest of the day. What, what our kids hear us pray for. Like what a funny image of your dad praying that, uh, I hope all of these kids are productive members of society. And then, Hey man, if the kids look up at each other, like, huh, what, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Productive member of society. I'm seven. I don't even know what you I don't know what that word is. Uh, you bring up pride. Pride is tricky. We got to do a segment on this uh, next week. Good pride, bad pride. We need different words for them, but it's okay because for thousands of years, there's been Christian ethics that have come up with the right words for these things. Uh, let me get an example. I got this email. Where is this email? Slater at Breitbart.com is the email, by the way. Slater at Breitbart.com. All right. Uh, all right. So someone said another reason for the lack of work, work ethic is there's no loyalty between employer and employee. Uh, this person says, my company pre-COVID, 400 people working. Uh, by COVID, they cut us to 200. We're now down to 120. They just let 12 people go so far, not for performance, but because the person no longer fit the new company structure, according to our COO. The effect sees friends letting go. The effect sees friends let go, and not because they were trolls, there comes a very frustrating feeling that there's a sword over your head and now your personal performance does not matter. That's an interesting new twist in the workplace that I haven't seen since I graduated college in the eighties. Yeah, that's interesting. So if you, if you are working for a company and they're just arbitrarily firing people, no matter what you do, how good you are, you're like, well, yeah, why would I go above and beyond? I'm I'm just working for this corporate cog. I am a cog in the corporate machine that just smacks everyone down no matter what. Just, you know, if I do good work, if I do bad work, it's, many times you look around, and you're like, well, these people are terrible at their job and they don't get fired, but they fired Jim. Jim's like the best employee we've, we have at this company. And you fired Jim. So it's just arbitrary. So it's like, well, what's the point even? Why? I'm, so there's that's definitely part of it. But here's the answer to the um, no loyalty between employer and employee, even though that's, that's probably very true. I don't, I don't I know it's true. I don't know how different it is, though. 
be curious to see. But there's a Christian ethic to this because you're not working for your employer. You're working for God. And I know people are like, listen, again, let me do this disclaimer. Oh, Schlater, Bible thumping again. Listen, we used to live in a Judeo-Christian country. We used to live in a Judeo-Christian country. A Judeo-Christian country had Judeo-Christian values. We're so far away from those values, we don't even know what they are anymore. We've lost sight of the values. And then we look around and we're like, wow, things really stink around here. What's going on? It's like, well, yeah. What would you, you think? When you throw away God, you don't just throw away God. You throw away a, a, a giant basket of life principles that go along with it. There's a reason why there are things in that basket of principles. There's a Christian ethic for everything. It's been around for 2,000 years. Everything's been thought of before too. This is one of my observations with atheists. Right? So an atheist will ask a question that they think is a real stumper. Oh, how do, but how do you know? They'll be like, oh, but the translations are slightly different. or what? They'll come up with something like, oh, I'm so smart. I'm so brilliant. No one's ever thought of this before. And you're like, um, like Thomas Aquinas answered that question 800 years ago, man. You're not, it's not like this, you're not the first person to come up with a real, a real humdinger of a, of a stumper on Christianity. But listen, I don't bemoan that person. That's all of our job to find the answers to these questions and know them. Uh, but here's the deal with this. There's a book called, um, Oh, your Slater doesn't know the title of a book again. It's called uh, Grace at Work, Redeeming the Grind. Redeeming the Grind. There's more to it, but it's by Brian Chappell. Grace at Work, Redeeming the Grind. A couple truckers last week called in and said when someone doesn't show up to work, help load up the truck or repair part of the truck or whatever, he says the whole system shuts down. I can't get to where it needs to go. The store doesn't get what they need, right? They can't sell it. They lose money, fire people. So it's a huge ripple. So the argument was that people don't do good work because they don't see how their work affects a larger chain of people. Or maybe they just don't even care even if they did see it. And there's definitely, that's a good secular argument. That's a good economic argument. Like you got to show up to work, man, because what you're doing affects other people. Whether they care about that or not, I don't know. But this guy, Brian, he tells a story of a man at a cheese factory. And he's uh, standing at the conveyor belt and watching the cheese go by. And every so often, he'll take off a hunk of cheese if it's too big so that it can fit in the package properly. Very boring job. Very mundane, boring job. But if he didn't do it, then the cheese wouldn't fit in the bag and the packaging wouldn't close right and someone would eat the cheese and get sick and then the company would be sued and maybe even shut down and a bunch of people, right? So that job had major ripple effects for good. But it's not just that. That's the secular reason for doing good work and having pride in your work. The truth is though, that's not your company's cheese. You're not working for your company. You're not even really working for other people. The theology of work is you're working for God. Oh, Slater Bible. No, no, again, I'm just telling you, this is how people used to think. This is what used to drive people. This was our cultural foundation that we don't have anymore. So if you want to know why we're all screwed up, it's because we lost all the cultural foundations. God made creation. No, no, randomness. You want to know why we're full of chaos in our culture today? 
is because we have taught generations and generations of kids that all of this just came from randomness to begin with. So I'll just happen to come. If things just happen to be this way, then what effect do you have on anything anyway? It's all random. It's all random, meaningless. It's what uh, evolution teaches. Creation is no, God made everything. There's order to everything. And you play a part in creation by cultivating and caring for it. Through work, whatever your job is, you are continuing God's work of forming and filling and subduing. And that is a beautiful thing no matter what it is. Tim Keller has another book on this called Every Good Endeavor. And he says, whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. And that's a wonderful thing. It's the classic story. There's many different versions of it. I don't know who first came up with it. But a man was touring a construction site and he saw three bricklayers. And he asked the first man what he's doing. What are you doing, man? And the, the first bricklayer said, oh, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bricklayer building a wall. And the second guy said, uh, he went to the second guy, what are you doing? Oh, I'm a bricklayer. I'm uh, working really hard to feed my family. Oh, good. That's good. That's a great secular answer. Super. Um, I'll add another bricklayer. There's four bricklayers in the mind version. Uh, hey, man, what are you... Um, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm uh, laying bricks so that we can build this building for other people. Oh, good. Nice. That's nice. So he asked the fourth guy, hey man, what are you, uh, what you doing? Oh, I'm a bricklayer. I'm building a cathedral to God Almighty. What's better? Who's going to do a better job? Put it like that. Okay, we used to have a country where not everyone, there's never unanimity in all this, but we still have in a country where the cultural ethos was whatever you're doing, you're doing for God. And we got rid of that. So then it's, oh, well, I'm, what, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing this to uh, make other people's life better. Okay, that's okay, I guess. But what if you don't care about other people anymore? Well, I'm doing it to make my life better. Okay, well, what if it doesn't really make your life that much better? Then why are you doing it? I don't know. Then I won't, I guess. <laughs> and now no one's doing anything. Why would you? So my point of all this is there is a theology to work. And when you throw out God from our culture, we threw out a lot of foundational bricks with him. And one of them is work ethic. We just lost excellence. We lost excellence for the sake of excellence. We lost beauty for the sake of beauty. And now the best that even many conservatives or the Republicans come up with, is, oh, you work hard to help the economy. I'm like, okay, whatever. It's got to be more than that. That's why I love the William F. Buckley line. He says, uh, he says, we are without reservation on the side of excellence. Excellence as worship. How about that? Excellence as worship. Hmm. Anyway, some thoughts. Thanks for being here. Talk to the great Dinesh D'Souza. Has a new movie coming out. Let's go see it. So it'll say something like uh, Biden's approval rating is 30%. And the assumption is that we would make is 70% of people agree with me that he's too far to the left. That's not always true. 
a lot of those people who don't approve of Biden don't approve of him because they don't think he's far left enough. Like the AOCs or the Bernie Sanders, whoever, they're like, hey, Biden, you're not doing enough crazy lefty things. You're too far to the right. So we may have the same answer that we don't approve of him, but for very, very different reasons. And this is a similar thing. This is a Rasmussen poll. A police state, here's the question. A police state is a tyrannical government that engages in mass surveillance, censorship, ideological indoctrination, and targeting of political opponents. How concerned are you that America is becoming a police state? Okay, so 76% of Republicans are concerned. Makes sense. 72% of independents. Interesting. But 67% of Democrats are concerned. Like, wait, what? No, you guys... You are the police state. You're, the, <laughs> you're, you're so. Wait, I don't. Does everyone know what a police state is? How can both different ideological spectrums be concerned about about the? We got a lot of questions here, and good news is Dinesh D'Souza is here to clear it up for us because he's got a new movie coming out called The Police State. Dinesh, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great, and uh, thanks for having me on. I'm really glad you're here. The movie's not called The Police State. Apologies, it's called Police State. No, the in front. Um, so what, let's define our terms here, Dinesh. What is a police state? Well, a good way to uh, find out is to look at uh, police states, classic police states around the world or in the past, uh, North Korea, China, uh, the old Soviet Union. So I would say that uh, mass surveillance is one of the defining characteristics, censorship, um, ideological indoctrination in the schools and in the media, um, uh, the attempt to create a one-party state. So in other words, not the elimination of elections. A lot of police states do have elections, but the elimination of effective opposition, uh, the existence of political prisoners, uh, the criminalization of political differences. So all of these uh, defining features of police states, which we can easily identify abroad, uh, I would say are now present to some degree or another in the United States. But that's the relevance of the movie. Are we becoming the unfree society that we have been pointing fingers at and deploring and denouncing for decades? Okay, I got a ton of questions, but right up front, how can people watch this movie? Well, it's going to be in theaters on two days, uh, October 23rd and 25th. We've bought out hundreds of theaters, and the tickets are available only in one place, and that is policestatefilm.net, policestatefilm.net. So you just plug in your zip code, boom, it'll bring up all the theaters around you. You can buy your tickets that way. Uh, and then later, it'll be available in streaming and DVD, so there'll be other ways to watch the movie. But the I make these movies for the theater, and it's really cool to see it in the theater. And it's even cooler to see it with like-minded people. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that's part of the experience. Uh, okay, big question. What do you say to the people who dismiss your wild dystopian craziness, Dinesh, and say, well, oh, come on, it'll never happen here? Well, the movie is actually made uh, for those people, and... Um, and it's made for those people because there's going to be people, really, even on the conservative side of the aisle, who say something like this. Well, I'm not Donald Trump. And, you know, I didn't go into the Capitol on January 6th. And I pay my taxes. I'm a law-abiding guy. So, gee, the FBI is not going to come smashing through my door. Uh, and I think that that view could not be more naive. Um, in fact, I'm on my podcast discussing Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. 
And he makes the same point about Soviet Russia. He goes, when people come to arrest you, the first thing people blurt out sheep-like is, what for? Why me? You know, people think you should be arresting other people, but surely not me. And so police states ultimately are very indiscriminate in their targets. Uh, But uh, we are in that early stage of building a police state. We're not there yet. What values did we used to have in America? What principles did we used to have that it hasn't been a thing that happened here yet? Well, uh, I think back to when I came to the United States in the late 70s and early 80s in my teen years. And I say to myself, look, uh, I had a bunch of freedoms that I absolutely took for granted. And many, but not all of them, are enumerated right there in the Bill of Rights. So I had freedom of speech. Um, I had the right to conscience. I had freedom of assembly, the right to petition the government for grievances, uh, equal rights under the law. Never occurred to me that the police agencies of government were treating me differently based upon um, based upon my po- political views. So uh, all those things that were outside the bounds of politics, I mean, that's why they are in the Bill of Rights. They're not supposed to be open to uh, political negotiation. Uh, 90% of people are not should not have the authority to take away your free speech. But nevertheless, here we are, and think about it, all those rights in one way or another have been in jeopardy. Now, sometimes the pretext is COVID. Sometimes the pretext is January 6th. That's why we have to censor you. We can't allow any disinformation on this platform. So I say to myself, we are now living in a country where there are really none of these fundamental rights that I can safely say that I still enjoy unmolested today. So I think the tyrants of our era have learned that you can't push too far. You can all, you go you go a little bit further, a little bit further, and they're patient. They're very patient. So it's created like this soft tyranny, but it's been effective in the sense that people don't even see it because it happens so slowly and in just little increments. And over there, it's always that guy way over there like you talked about. How do you get well, people to wake up and see that? Yeah, I would put it slightly differently. I, the tyranny is not soft to the people who experience it. It's, it's very yeah. harsh. But the point is, it is camouflaged from the rest of the people because it is always done under the facade of law. So today we keep hearing, actually from the very people constructing the police state, they keep chanting the word democracy. We're doing this to save democracy. Or they say, we're doing this to fight misinformation or disinformation. Now, even the word disinformation has changed its meaning. It used to mean the official propaganda of another government. So if I said something on social media and you didn't agree with it, or even if it was flat out wrong, I might be wrong, but I'm not engaging in disinformation. But nevertheless, that word is now used as a pretext for suppression. So I would say that what's happening is that unlike other police states, and when a a police state is fully established, it doesn't need the facade of law. Stalin didn't need to tell people, this is why you're being arrested. This This is the bill of indictment. No, none of that. But in our emerging police state, it's always done with you know, people in white robes and judicial procedures, and there's a bailiff and there's a jury. And so people looking at it from the outside naively think, oh, wow, well, this is a lawful process. Give me an example today. How do, where do you see it today so we can get people to open up a bit, open their eyes? Uh, are you talking about where do I see the police state? Yeah, give me a specific. Well, I would say that... Trump is the embodiment of the target of the police state. And you see it just simply in the absolute promiscuous recklessness of the attacks on him. Now, it's always possible to say, 
you know, Trump is a flawed man or Trump did this or Trump did that. But just take the latest case where they're trying to essentially destroy his business in New York uh, on what is clearly an absurd pretext. He took loans from banks. The banks hired appraisers. Trump submitted appraisals. And so a judge who's like 90 years old sits around and he looks and he looks at Mar-a-Lago, for example, and he goes, well, that's worth $18 million. Now, to anyone in real estate, this is laughable. Um, I mean, I was in, I was in uh, Palm Beach recently and I uh, stayed in the house of a friend and it was a three-bedroom house and it's listed for $11 million. I almost fell out of my seat. Uh, and it's right next to Mar-a-Lago. A three-bedroom house for $11 million. Well, this is the absurdity of South Florida prices. But my point is, what is the judge doing? It's the judge who's lying. It's not Trump who's overvaluing his properties. This guy is flatly lying. And, and the fact that we see all this coming out of judges, again, it's the facade of law. Because, again, it's, there's a process going on in New York. The process itself is lawful. But the problem is the people in the system have become corrupted. Mm. What, are we, what are we supposed to do? What are conservatives supposed to do? with the FBI? And how are we supposed to think about the FBI these days? I think we've got to realize that the FBI has become a clear and present danger to our security. Now, this is not to say that there, in other areas, there aren't FBI agents doing good work and chasing down criminals. And, you know, if there was a murder in my town, I'm sure they would call in the FBI. So the question I raise about the FBI is this. How is it that an organization can get good people to do really bad things? Uh, and the answer is, and, and all police states do this, they bureaucratize the procedure. For example, uh, they'll, I saw a documentary just recently about Waco, and they were talking about the hostage negotiator, basically the guy who comes in with the big guns and takes you out. You know. And they, asked him, they were interviewing him about Waco, and they said, what did you know about David Koresh? He goes, David Koresh? Never heard of him. He goes, I'm basically a killer. When they bring me in, they tell me, that's a bad guy. That's a target. Your job is to take him out. It's not your job to find out who he is, what he did. So you are essentially a process man. And you put all the skills that you learned in Vietnam or whenever you were in the military, and, and you apply those same skills. So you can see here how a guy who's essentially an ethical guy, a normal guy with a family, is turned into a stone-cold killer by a system that essentially says, look, it's not your job to determine guilt or innocence. You're the guy who comes in to carry out a task, and your task is noble. And you get you know, career advancements and bonuses, and you have a comfortable retirement based upon doing your duty. And so this is how you get ordinary FBI agents, people who, who are nice guys who aren't out to ruin the country or establish a police state, nevertheless, to be collaborators in building a police state. Mm. Tommy Dinesh D'Souza, of course. That is so important, that point you just made, because that, that removes all accountability from that person. But I understand why, even in a, from a not, uh, we're creating a tyrannical police state perspective, you would, you would do that to someone, right? I mean, there's like a, there's like a genuine, how do I word this? There's, like, there's a reason why you would do that. You, like, you need, you, Mike. right? You need it to work. You, you need the. Oh no, uh, I agree with that, and that's this is the sort of insidiousness of the whole thing. I mean, yes. you remember the scene in The Fugitive where you know the guy who's innocent is running away. This is Harrison Ford, and he shouts out to the bounty hunter. He goes, you know, he shouts out to the the, the guy who's pursuing him, uh, Tommy Lee Jones. He goes, he goes, I'm innocent, and the guy shouts, I don't care, because <laughs> that guy's job is to chase you down. You're a, a fugitive. 
and his job is to bring you to justice. It's not his job to figure out whether you did it or not. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with what the FBI guy is doing. I'm saying that ultimately a corrupt system is one that, is, that sets up its incentives and targets not based upon justice, but based upon tyranny. Yes, you're right. Because it, it, it couldn't work otherwise. Like you can't have a military where you give orders to the, to the people on the ground and they're like, nah, I don't know. I don't know if I uh, agree with the, uh, right? You, it, won't, it can't function, but then it can no. be so corrupted from that point as well. Wow, what a tricky uh, balance and nuance to find there. I've always said that uh, there's been no justification in the world that has caused more evil than I'm just doing my job. And yeah, that's well, hard. censorship, you find you find somewhat of the same thing. I mean, there with censorship, you start off with the fact that when you're dealing with a health emergency, you don't want people putting out false information because the cost of that would be high on a society. So you say it's really important that we have trusted health authorities. Now, the, the reciprocal obligation is for those health authorities to be very careful about not ideologically manipulating an epidemic without camouflaging things that they know to be true. And yet, as we dig into this again, you find, take a guy like Fauci. Now, Fauci is not sort of your standard tyrant, but I think what happened with Fauci is he realized, I've been funding gain-of-function research, not in Wuhan, but you know, here in America. But those guys have been working in collaboration with Wuhan. So if it were to come out that that's where the virus came from, there's going to be hell to pay. So his point is, I need to figure out how to sort of kind of get that idea off the off the table and so he commissions a study and he reads the study beforehand and then he shows up in a press conference and he holds up the study like it's an independent study that was just oh there's some scholars who came up with this remarkable study very reliable virologists saying that covid could not have originated in a lab so think about all this again if you're stalin you would need to do any of this but when you're a police state that's building yourself up you need to do, engage in this kind of deception. But it is deception, isn't it? Because you're manipulating an academic process. You're acting like this is peer-reviewed research. You commission the study. It's coming from scholars that you give money through, through your federal agencies. They have, incentive, they have an incentive to change their opinion and say what you think, which is exactly what they did here. So all of this is a kind of this shows you the bowels of the police state, the motives behind it. That's what I wanted to get at in this movie. I didn't just want to say, oh, our freedoms are threatened. I wanted to take you into the police state, show you who's doing it, how it's organized, and ultimately who's in charge. I mean, that's a huge question because think about it. I mean, in China, we know who's running that police state. It's Xi. Who's running the police state that, to the degree we have one in Russia? Well, that's Putin. Who is running our police state? I defy you to answer that question. Wow. Okay. So does that mean it's nothing to worry about because we don't have that tyrannical head? Or is no. that... No, it's all the more reason maybe to be worried because it's it's not bound by anything. It's only bound by the collective human nature, which is not a good thing. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we our police state is somewhat opaque. It's clear that important decisions are being made I'm not saying Biden isn't going along with them, but I am saying I don't think he is making them. And that in a democracy, of course, raises a question. Well, who is? Yeah, you're right. But that, that would cause people to be like, oh, it's nothing to worry about. But no, I, I look at that. and I'm like, oh, that's even more worrisome. It's not you're not bound by any person. Um, OK, we're talking about Dinesh D'Souza. The, the movie is called Police State, policestatefilm.net, policestatefilm.net. 
I got a hard question for you today. So I was talking to a friend of mine because uh, uh, San Diego and many other cities are building these uh, cameras into streetlights that can uh, track faces and the whole thing. Right now it's license plates, but just a little software update and, and you're just like China tracking faces. And uh, I forget how many there are. There's a couple thousand they're putting all over the city. And it's all about safety, of course. And he says, my friend says, listen, if I'm in a car accident and someone hits me, I want that on camera so that they, they get in trouble. If someone murders my wife, I want the camera to get that so that the guy, the guy gets caught. And I want, the, I want the cameras to be able to follow his car exactly to his home so we can catch him. If I'm accused of murder, I want the cameras to know that I was actually across town. I was, I was nowhere near that murder. He wants more cameras everywhere. And so, because in the name of safety, what do you, what do you say to that? Well, here we're dealing with a question that is in the movie, but goes beyond the movie. And that is that these modern forms of technology, uh, you mentioned the camera. I'll give one that's, I think, even, even more powerful, and that is cell phone geotracking, right? Yes. That was the basis of the evidence I used in my last film, 2000 Mules. The fact that wherever you go, your phone is essentially spitting out. This is where Dinesh is. This is where you can find him. And these days, you can do it even if your phone is off. So think about it. That essentially eliminates any meaningful privacy because you're constantly it's available to be, to be tracked. Now, that has huge benefits. Think about the benefits for law enforcement. There's not a criminal case in the country today, uh, at least a burglary or murder, where you're trying to locate a suspect where you don't use cell phone geotracking. Uh, and, and yet there are clear threats to, to privacy. The same thing, I think, with digital media. So I think, I think I would just make this point that I think a lot of these technologies are very useful. They have practical purposes. This would also apply to artificial intelligence. But they are also tools of tyranny. And so in the wrong hands, used in the wrong way, they can be terrifyingly bad. Uh, and, and that gives the police state a power it didn't have. I mean, Solzhenitsyn in the opening chapter of the Gulag talks about the fact that a woman was told in her small town that she was on a list and they were going to come to get her. He says she should have gotten on a train and, and, and essentially gotten out of town and they would never have found her. But she went to her apartment and that night they arrested her. Right now, the point was in the old Soviet Union, if you got on a train and went to a different town, they couldn't find you. But not true today. Today, if you get on a train and go someplace else, you, they'll find you in five minutes. So we're in Gulag 2.0, and that means that the new forms of tyranny will not exactly resemble the old, but that doesn't mean they won't be just as bad, if not worse. RFK Jr. made that point, and he used Anne Frank, and he so had to apologize that his own wife threw him under the bus. And said, um, I'm so disappointed in my husband and I disagree with him. But it's like, obviously, what, <laughs> what you said is true that every tyrant in history would have loved to have the technologies that we have today. And I don't trust us. I don't trust us or the systems that we've put in place to protect the people from that tyranny. Why would we? Why would anyone trust? Um, what do you, my last question for you, Dinesh. What do you say about the person who says, oh, who cares? I have nothing to hide. Go ahead. Track me all day, Dinesh. Whatever. You can go through my phone. You can go through my stuff. I, I, they, oh, here's another one. They know everything about you already anyway. So why be against putting an Alexa in your house or whatever it is? They already know everything. So who cares? 
Well, I have two answers. One is the movie is, it's, well, it's full of people who are insiders, who are whistleblowers, the people sort of who have been doing the police state. But it's also full of ordinary citizens who have become at the receiving end of the police state. And my reason for focusing on those people is I want to emphasize that it can happen to you. Now, if you ask me how it can happen to you, I would answer this way. I'll be the FBI guy. You be Mike Slater. I would ask you to talk to me about yourself for 10 minutes, and I will tell you two or three federal charges that I can bring against you just based (laughs) upon what you say. So if some guy goes, well, I'm a doctor. Do you make prescriptions? Yes, I do. All right, here's a federal charge. Prescribing pain medication to people inappropriately. That is a serious crime. People lose their medical license or even go to jail for it. And yet it's so subjective. Every doctor is vulnerable to that charge. I know a guy who was charged. He didn't, did nothing wrong, but he went to college with a mafia guy. And the feds were trying to get him to fess up about his friend and give, give him the scoop. He's like, he's my friend. I don't, I'm not going to talk to you. But they called him on a Sunday. They interviewed him for an hour. They found two things that he said that contradicted each other. I met him on Wednesday. No, I actually met him on Friday. And they charged him with lying to a federal officer. This is basically what they were trying to do to Mike Flynn. They do a long interview. They find two things. They say both those things can't be true. And so, and that charge, this guy went to two years federal prison for that. But the point is that they have to want to get you. When they want to get you, they can get anybody. Mm. Uh, and, and so find me the, the man and I'll find you the crime. This is really a lot of my objection to what they're doing with Trump. They've identified the guy. It's like, okay, listen, you know, let's go shotgun on this guy. Let's put 90 charges on him because why? Something is bound to, to, to succeed. You know, we're going to go with hospitable juries in Washington, D.C. If we lose in Palm Beach, we'll win over here. We'll find a judge in New York to destroy his assets. So this is sheer Stalinism. 21 U.S. Code 841 makes it a felony crime to knowingly and intentionally distribute a controlled substance other than in the usual course of practice and for a legitimate medical purpose. You can. It's so obvious how someone, uh, some lawyer, whoever, could say, "Oh, you prescribed that drug, but that's not the you. You should have done this one instead. You should have done this drug first before you distributed this other drug. That's not the usual course of practice, and we're throwing you in jail." Absolutely, right? Exactly. I mean, uh, I mean, look at my own case from 2013. Now, this is you know when I when it happened, I just thought, well, look, I I upset Obama because I made a movie about him, so they're doing a one on kind of one off vendetta on me. I had no idea it was going to be a prelude to Papadopoulos and George, you know, Michael Flynn, and um, and then later, of course, Trump. But in my case, it was like, you know, you gave $20,000 to your college friend, Wendy Long, to run for the Senate because her campaign was bankrupt. Um, You did this out of sort of filial loyalty. You got nothing in return. You didn't even tell Wendy Long you did it. And so we're going to try to put you in prison for two years. And when I was sitting across from these Obama DOJ lawyers, I'll tell you something. The interesting thing about it, this was not directly the DOJ, it was the SDNY, the Southern District of New York. But... The thing is, I got the impression that they would have been happy to jail me for 20 years for what I did. And it was a big wake up call for me, because until that time, I thought American politics, you know, it's a debate between two sides with competing ideas and values. But the gangsterization of it hit me, uh, you know, very powerfully. And since then, I've looked at American politics a little differently. I would (laughs) would imagine policestatefilm.net. Got two showings at the end of October, just a couple weeks away, even though October seems like it's months and months away, but it's, it's just a couple days. So end of October, uh, you can watch the film 
uh, near you, policestatefilm.net. Where else would you like people to go and uh, listen to some Dinesh D'Souza? Well, I mean, I do a daily podcast on uh, audio and Apple, Google, and Spotify. I put it up on YouTube and Rumble, and so I cover a whole range of issues. But right now, I think this film really captures what's going on in the country today. Uh, I described it this way. I said, this is not a film I ever wanted to make because I never wanted America to become a country where a film like this needed to be made. Um, and um, I kind of almost feel like the, the animal, you know, in the herd who's issuing a warning that the herd is in danger because I see a movement in the trees. But you're right. A lot of people are grazing and they're like, hey, you know, we build a beast of nothing to worry about. You know, there's nothing's going to come to <laughs> us. Uh, and that yeah. it's that kind of film, and I think it'll be a very transforming experience for people to watch it. Let's be grateful that this film can can still be made for now, uh, and go Absolutely. exercise that right to see it. Dinesh D'Souza, appreciate you, sir. Thank you. Keep up the great work, Police State Film. Net. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. I will not be here on Monday. Emma Jo Morris is going to be here at 8 o'clock, though, to talk about uh, Hunter suing Rudy Giuliani. Give me a break. That was obviously all over that. That's that's her thing. Uh, I am looking forward to Wednesday at 8 o'clock. Bill O'Reilly is going to be here to talk about his newest book, but I got a lot more questions than just his book. So that's all coming up next week. Hope you can join us. Hope you can join us then. Have a wonderful weekend.